Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to start off by saying uh, if you're in grade four to six, you can go with Chandler, our future alpha group leader, and for grade four to six, uh, Sunday school out in, um, or kids church out in the back. Um, well, my name is Phil Pearson, and I'm the ministry director here at St. Pete's, and as always, it's a joy to be with you. We got to hang out, some of us, at the symphony at sunset last night, and I guess there's another one next week, which is very exciting. Um, and I, thinking about the symphony, I recently had come across a story of the great composer Beethoven. You may have heard of him. Um, and the story goes like this. The great composer Beethoven used to sometimes play a trick on polite audiences, especially when he guessed they weren't interested in serious music, unlike us last night. And this, these serious music people. And he would perform a piece on the piano, one of his slow movements, melodic, was so gentle and beautiful. And the writer says that he would lull them into thinking that the world was a soft, cozy place where they could think beautiful thoughts and relax into semi-slumber. And then, just as the final notes were dying away, Beethoven would smash his whole arm onto the keys of the piano, shocking all those listening. Just this burr, 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 at the end of it. And everyone would jolt awake and be shocked by that moment. And today's passage feels like that a little bit. We have been, uh, we're going through a long series in Luke. We're at, I think, 59 sermons throughout Luke. And we're currently right at the end of chapter 12. And chapter 12 has been building up. Jesus has been pointing his finger and challenging us. And then comes the words, I've come to bring fire. Not peace, but division. We've, over the past couple of weeks, learned about hypocrisy and the encouragement to fear God and trust God. We learned about generosity and greed and this teaching to come and be generous with our lives. Lloyd, last week, had instructed us, told us that judgment is coming, to be ready for it, but that judgment may not be bad as long as we are with Jesus. But then, fire, more judgment, and not peace, but division. These are those moments where you're reading the Bible and you're like, I don't understand what's going on. You crack open four or five commentaries to try to get a handle on what's going on, but it's still a challenge. And so today I want to focus mainly on those first two statements. I've come to bring fire. And the second, I've come not to bring peace, but division. Um, and before we do that, let me pray and then I'll read our passage one more time. Father God, we give thanks to be a church here in downtown Vancouver um, to enjoy being in community with one another. We ask that in this sermon, what is of you would rise up and what is of me would fall away, that you would convict our hearts and invite us to something more. We believe you have a message of good news, of great joy for us, and let us listen and it change our hearts. In your name, amen. So unlike the pre... Oh, let me read the passage. Um, uh, Luke 12, 49 to 59 says this, I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, Three against two and two against three, they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he said to the crowd, 
When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you do not know how to interpret the present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going to the adversary, as you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. How are we feeling so far with this passage? Immediately, some tension rising up, some confusion. And as we might read these words, we may think to ourselves, this isn't the picture of Jesus that I normally have. This isn't the Jesus I normally think of. Not fire, not judgment. Peace is what I am normally thinking of. We may turn to passages um, throughout the Gospels where Jesus says his divine mission is something different, right? A number of times he says things like this. In John 12, he says, I did not come to bring judgment to the world, or I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. In Matthew 5, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Or in John 10, he says, I have come that they, have, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Luke 4, as Jesus is preparing his divine mission, he reads a scroll about himself and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. Or the last one in John 3, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Often, when we think of Jesus' divine mission, we would say that is what he came for. Liberation, freedom, not fire and brimstone. Joy and redemption. So why is Jesus pointing at his, his finger at himself and giving this challenging teaching? Why is he saying that he's going to bring fire? Why is he saying that he's come to divide? In moments like this, as I've said over my past couple sermons, it's important not to become defensive, but to lean in and be curious. So, last week, Lloyd had reminded us, through the parable of the stewards of the house, that the judge is going to come. Judgment is coming. And he reminded us to be on guard and wait. But that judgment is not a bad thing. And Jesus ends that previous section with the words, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Essentially, it's this. We will be judged for how we have managed and stewarded what we have been given. Judgment is coming and fire along with it, but it is good to be close to the judge. That's where we're kind of heading. But then Jesus lands with, I've come to bring fire. So he's reminding us to be good stewards, but I've come to bring fire. So what does this mean? To the Hebrew people in the first century, fire was understood to be a symbol of refinement and purity and judgment. Two things happen when you put something into the fire. Either it burns up or it's changed in the process. If you want to get to true gold, you have to burn away the dross. So when Jesus says, I've come to bring fire, it is to be understood to mean that he's come to bring judgment. And through that judgment, 
things will either be burned up or refined to their true state. Essentially, things will be revealed for what they truly are. And Jesus saying, it says, this judgment will come. And so that's why in verses 54 to 59, he says, you can read the weather, but not the times. You know what these weather signals bring, but you don't understand what this moment is about. And so he goes on and says, if you're in debt, pay your debts and reconcile before you could be brought to court or worse, thrown into prison. And essentially he's saying this, judgment is not yet here. So before it comes, reconcile your your debts and get in the clear. Because if you're too late, you'll have to pay to the very last penny. You could think of it this way. Jesus says, I am bringing the fires of judgment. One day they will come, and if you are not ready, it could consume you. But there's hope in those words. It may not seem like it at first, but there's hope because he says this, how I wish it were already kindled. This means that it's not yet here, or at least at the moment that Jesus said, that judgment has not yet come. So what's Jesus waiting for to bring that judgment? In the next, uh, in the end of verse 49, he says, but I have a baptism to undergo. And the very curious thing is the waters of baptism will be the fuel that, to start the fire of judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, judgment has not yet come, but I have a baptism to undergo. And what we learn is baptism is the thing that starts judgment, but it's not Jesus' baptism at the hands of John. Instead, the cross is where the baptism occurs. Baptism happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and then on the cross at the end of Jesus' ministry. And if your Bible has footnotes, you'll see a small little footnote at the end of verse 50. And it says, it will link you over to John 19, verse 30. And it says, it is finished. Jesus cries his last words on the cross in reference to the baptism that is to come. The baptism has finally occurred. And what um, what we come to understand is that his baptism that Jesus was talking about was his crucifixion. And what this means is where the hope is. The cross is where the fire that Jesus comes to bring lands. It doesn't land on you or me. Instead, it lands on the cross, and the wood of the cross becomes the kindling for that fire that he's coming to bring. And this is significant because then it means that if we are in Christ, the judgment the fire that he comes to bring lands on him instead of on us. So though this first passage may seem dark and gloomy, there is hope in there. I love what Paul writes in Romans 6, um, the mystery of the cross. He writes this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through his baptism into death in order that just As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we pass through the fires of judgment unburned, but instead refined. That is at least as far as I understand this opening passage. And it can be gloomy, but it's filled with hope from knowing that that is done for us. 
And then it also rectifies the challenging passages or the contrary passages, something like John 12, where he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Because in, that, in fact, that judgment lands on Jesus instead of on you and I. So there's hope there, right? Are you with me? Okay. But the next part is where I get even more excited. In verse 51, Jesus says, do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? What would we answer to that? Do you think he came to bring peace? Yes, right? That's exactly what we thought. Look through the Bible, and you'll see many different places where that's exactly what we expect. The angels to the shepherds say this, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those whom his favor rests. Or when Mary finds out she's pregnant and she sings the Magnificat, she sings the words, he will guide our feet in the path of peace. Or later on in the Bible, Peter is reflecting on this mystery and he says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. We believe, rightly so, that Jesus came to bring peace. But apparently, that is not what Jesus thought. So why would he make this audacious claim? In order to understand this not peace, but division, let's look at an art piece that will help us understand this. This behind me is the Ara Pasis de Auguste, or Ara Pasis Auguste. Has anyone seen it? Okay, it's in Rome, and it means the altar of Augustine peace. It was an open-air um, altar founded and commemorated by the Roman Senate in 13 BC when Augustus Caesar returned from Rome after a three-year-long war. He came, and they began to create the Arapacis as a monument to the peace that was now being in place throughout all of Rome. The Pax Romana, you may have heard of it, or the Roman peace. So Augustus Caesar, he was the nephew of Julius Caesar, the second emperor of Rome, and he ruled Rome from 27 BC until his death in 14 AD. And it was through military efforts and political leadership that Rome entered into this golden era of peace that would last for 200 years, the Pax Romana. And it was defined by peace, freedom from conflict. And that sounds great. That's exactly what we are hoping for. But it's important to lean in and ask, what type of peace did Rome actually experience? One historian, he puts it this way, he says, this peace was not the absence of war, but a rare situation which existed when all opponents had been beaten down and lost the ability to resist. See, that brings up a vital understanding of how we think we get to peace and an ancient understanding of how we think we get to peace. Another historian wrote this way, um, if you want peace, prepare for war. If you want peace, prepare for war. This peace was not absence of violence. It was birthed from violence, and it was instilled and kept from violence, or it was instilled by violence and oppression. Unity was established through oppression and dominance. This is how Augustus Caesar brought and founded peace. This is how he brought the Roman, the Pax Romana, beating down the opponent until they lost the ability to resist. And the Arapacis is a monument to that type of peace. Here's the thing. 
That may seem horrible for a moment. But I would advocate we are not far from it. Here in the West, in North America, we live in a land of plenty, and for the most part, an era of peace. And that peace that we experienced was bought from generations of war and oppression. In 1607, the first settlers landed in North America, and their hope was to find a land of peace. And they brought with it violence, oppression, and subjugation so they could experience peace. The Europeans and Spaniards came and decimated and enslaved indigenous people in the hope of peace. Peace is what led to, or the desire for peace is what led to revolutionary wars and civil wars. And the desire for peace is what led to the First and Second World War on both ends. If we want peace, we always prepare for war. And I'm sure even in our own lives, there are moments where we say, I want peace, and in order to get that, I'm going to fight this other person. I'm going to argue with them. I'm going to put them down until they have lost the ability to resist, and then there will be peace. We're not that far from then, right? So I bring all of this up because Jesus lived in the first century in Israel and was one of the opponents that Rome had put down. Israel lost the ability to resist. And Jesus was born a little over two decades into Augustus Caesar's reign as Caesar. And his ministry began 40 years into this peace in Rome. But Israel was not enjoying the peace because they were the subjects. They were still feeling the brunt of violence and subjugation against them. And many Israelites believed, like their Roman counterparts, that the way to peace was through violence, was turning over the empire. The Maccabees, just almost 200 years before Jesus, they were searching for peace, and so they tried to overturn the empire. So Jesus asks his crowd, Do you believe I came to bring peace? You might ask it a different way. He might have been saying this. Do you believe I came to be like Caesar? Peace through violence. Unity through oppression. I think that is where Jesus' question is coming from and leads us to. Do we believe he came to bring peace? Or maybe better put, how do you think he came to bring peace? Because if it's, if it's through violence and oppression and unity, Jesus will have no part of it. As we've already seen with the first part of the passage, he's come to bring fire, but it's going to land on himself instead of those around him. And then Jesus goes even further. Not only do I reject your way to peace, but I'm, co- I'm coming to bring division. Father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. For most of us, that's probably not a new thing. We're probably some way there. But Matthew 10, 21 gives us a little more nuance to these families turned against each other. Matthew writes on this same story, but he changes the, the language a little bit. He says this, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. This division is caused by affiliation with Jesus. Jesus comes, and in his wake, violence and oppression occur 
through his way of peace, but centered on people who align themselves with him. This whole chapter, chapter 12, is building up to talk about true discipleship. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? What is the cost? And Jesus says the cost is division. The cost of this way of peace is persecution on you. And this seems for a moment to be contrary to the Christian message, but Jesus is saying division in a family will be a signpost to the resurrection. It will be a signpost of true allegiance to Jesus. And that is very challenging for us. And not necessarily a hopeful message, right? But why does it lead to division? I think it comes down to the word faith. Faith is translated from the Greek word pistis, which is just a great word. Um, And Michael Gorman, the New Testament theologian, he brings up this Greek word pistis, and he says it doesn't actually translate well to the word faith. Gorman instead advocates that it should be translated to believing allegiance or faithful allegiance. And to Gorman, faith is not simply an intellectual assent. It is, it is not an assent to an idea. It is like patriotic or familial allegiance. To put it another way, to follow Jesus or identify yourself with him is to become a new citizen of a different kingdom. And like becoming a citizen of Canada, you have to cut up your old citizenship. You have to tear up your passport, your social security number. You change your last name. No longer are you identified by your family of origin, your nationality, your birth family. To identify with Jesus is to live under a different kingdom. And by identifying ourselves in that way, we will face division and persecution is what Jesus is saying. But why is this? This doesn't make sense for our narrative today. So though I'm not a sports guy, let me make a sports metaphor for a moment. And this isn't even a sports metaphor. It's just um, a few years ago in the NFL, something was happening that I was very intrigued by. Colin Kaepernick began kneeling during the national anthem. Like I said, not a real sports reference because I don't understand this. But Colin Kaepernick began kneeling during the NFL or during the national anthem. And he was a a quarterback of a team. And whenever the, (laughs) the national anthem played, he kneeled out of protest against police brutality directed towards people of color. And throughout America and Canada, people began fighting about whether or not this sacrilegious act of kneeling during the national anthem was right or wrong. Probably in this room, we have different stances of if he was right or wrong. Now, I'll betray fully my own opinion. I think Colin Kaepernick was 100% right in kneeling in protest against the national anthem. He was, he was calling out something wrong in the country, saying, I will not stand for this national anthem while my brothers and sisters are being oppressed by the government. It's a beautiful statement. And in my personal opinion, and I'm happy to debate, I think that no Christian should stand during national anthems. Maybe we should even kneel. Not out of honor, but out of resistance and rebellion and division. Because, O Canada, and I pledge allegiance, are not our anthems. We said our anthem just before this sermon, the Nicene or Apostles' Creed. It sums up our beliefs about the world and the universe. 
Those are our anthems. And if we collectively, if I could convince you in this room to collectively begin not standing for national anthems in schools and in sports games, whatever it is, people would start to get mad. They, may, they might even start to hate us for not siding with their allegiance. Parents may rebuke their kids for not siding with the allegiance of the country. I think that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, for our citizenship is in heaven. And I think this is what we're supposed to do because it's what we see in the early church. The early Christians began rising up against Caesar. They would say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, which was a political and religious statement. They refused to give honor to the empire, and they were hated for it. A simple question is this. Why were the early Christians persecuted? Because there were many other religions in the Roman Empire, the Jewish people, though they faced some persecution, they didn't face the outright persecution that the church did. The church was making a political statement against the Roman Empire. They were showing through their actions, this is not where our allegiance lies. They refused to be part of the system. And it led to division and persecution against them. And if we started doing this today that division and persecution to us might arise again. And I think it begs a question, why is the church in North America not persecuted? Because in other places, it's found to be divisive and dangerous. And is it that our churches today aren't against the empire often? It's a challenging question for you and me, right? Why is our message not dangerous to the empire? Is it because we, as Christians, took places of power? We manipulated sources of power to look well on the church, and that might be a good thing for a period of time, but we have often taken the place of those in power than those oppressed, which is out of line often from what Jesus was teaching us to. I went fully off script there. <laughs> so, the answer to why the early Christians were persecuted was they were claiming no king but Jesus, which was taking an old Roman statement, no king but Caesar. They rejected that, and it led to this division and persecution against them. So Jesus has said, I've not come to bring peace, not peace through violence. Instead, Jesus will lead a peaceful movement that will, for a time, result in persecution and violence on those following him. And just like Jesus absorbed the fires of judgment on himself, we are to absorb the violence and persecution done against us, forgive our enemies, and through that reveal the gospel all over again. We believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but a Prince of Peace that for a time will not result in the peace we think. So I've brought this up to be contrary, challenging people. And I think I need to add a caveat, just in case, to say I did not say that we should start acting like jerks. <laughs> because for many people, they take Jesus' teaching, I've not come for peace, but division, and they're like, great, I've been looking for a reason to tear my family apart. I've, been, I've just been waiting for something to like fuel this fire. 
And we see across Canada, across North America, across the, across the world, people calling themselves Christians that choose to be rude, disrespectful, bigoted, hate, hateful, racist, sexist, the whole nine yards. They do that out of the name of Jesus. But that is not the real path of peace. Jesus tells us to be peaceful, but that his is not the Roman type of peace. To show people a power contrary to Caesar, even if it leads to your rejection. I believe this is what he means when he tells us he's not come to bring peace, but division. If we choose to follow his way of love and show it in our words and deeds, if we show our pistis, our faithful allegiance in him, it may result in us being rejected. It may result in the type of rejection that he talked about. Because the cross becomes a dividing marker of allegiance. The cross takes on the image of a new flag of self-sacrificial love. But it also represents a different king and a different kingdom. Through our faithful allegiance to Christ, we begin to live like him, forgiving our enemies and loving them as Christ instructed us to love. But that love, if truly followed, becomes dangerous. For Christians, our personal freedom is not our king. Our personal freedom is not our king. Sex and pleasure is not our king. Money is not our king. Politics and power is not our king. Jesus is our king. And if we give him our faithful allegiance, it may make us do things that are uncomfortable, but that resist empires of Caesar. The Christian life starts with us inviting Jesus into our heart, but it continues as we make him king and lord of our life. And that is challenging. But if we follow Jesus' teachings, if we call him lord of our life, lord of our bank account, lord of our cell phone, our sex life, our time, people might start to get angry at us. I read this great little story, <clears throat> and somebody said, um, following Jesus may teach us to help the old ladies cross the street. That's an act of love. But he says, but it's only an act of love in Jesus if it contraries um, the Roman power, the powers of Caesar. So it only is a true act of love when it goes against. So he says, if you want to help the old ladies across, across the street, do it while it's a youth soccer game that you don't attend. While it's a sports game that you don't go to. While it's an, a symbol of Roman power and oppression. While it's a symbol of empire. When you love during those moments, that is revealing the contrary love of Jesus. Does that make sense? A little bit? Maybe I didn't quote it well. But <clears throat> this is a hard teaching. I've been wrestling with this all week. How do I live as though I'm showing that faithful allegiance to God. Because the truth is, I'd rather live for comfort and pleasure. Through and through, and I'm an Enneagram 7, we're hedonists, we get it. We want pleasure. But Jesus is calling me and my faithful allegiance to do something different. To follow him and live in faithful allegiance to that. So normally I have a benediction for you. Normally I would say, St. Peter's, go and do this thing. But today, I'll just offer a question of reflection. Where does your true allegiance lie? 
Do you consider it worthwhile to give Jesus your faithful allegiance? To call him Lord and King over your whole life? Or is the cost too much? Because it's not an easy thing to follow. And if you do, if you do consider the cost enough, if you do want to put your faithful allegiance in him, what would it look like to show a little bit more allegiance in your day-to-day life? The band's going to come up and give us a bit of time of reflection, and I just encourage you, wrestle with that question, where does your allegiance lie, and do I want to give him more of my allegiance? Let me pray.